Good evening. It's good to see each one of you here as we gather to worship. All of you joining us online, welcome. I want to remind you as we come to uh, sing music and sing songs this evening that I want to remind you that we are actually coming before the throne of grace, before the throne of God. And even though we can't see it with our physical eyes, He's here and He's sitting on His throne and Jesus is uh, ruling and reigning even now. And so as we begin this evening, have that in your mind that we are before a holy God and we bow our knee at his footstool and ascribe the glory that's due his name. Let's stand and worship him this evening. Thank you. 
thank you for inviting us into your holy presence to worship your holy name. Be reminded of what you've done for us and who you are. Great 
has to happen on the inside first. So as this song says, God, we invite you to do heart surgery on us every time we're in your presence so that we can truly be the expressions of your grace, your love, and your mercy and reflect your glory and your character in everything that we do.
We want to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians as we continue our journey through the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A couple of reminders uh, that we got going on. Just a reminder of over the next couple of weeks we're collecting uh, those donations for Ukraine uh, that are going to Harmony Church. And I got an email that uh, Marcel had already received the money. We wired it over there and... and they took the family of nine that's with them out shopping, and the testimony of Angela was she took them out shopping, and it's really kind of a cool thing going to a Romanian store. They're really kind of just interesting places, and they got the cool stuff. But the families, they were just gathering a few little things. She says, oh, no, get the things that you need, and they were very reluctant. But uh, she was pushing them, saying, you know, you get the toiletries you need, get the things that you need, and so... They're already starting to use some of the resources that we sent over in Trianne and another gal, and I can't remember her name is, they are loading up a whole car full of uh, material, of uh, some clothes, some toiletries, and all the different things, and they are going into Ukraine. They're taking it up into Ukraine. So we're going to pray for them as those things go out and doing that. But we're continuing to collect those donations um, over the, here the next couple of weeks, and then we're going to wire uh, we're going to wire it over to them is the fastest way to get there. Another reminder, too, we were going to do a Steps of Paul trip, and that got canceled pre-COVID. And so we are, if, if you received an email because you were part of that, that, that trip, um, then good. If you didn't, we have an open registration for going to, not Steps of Paul, but we're going to go to the seven churches of Revelation in Turkey. And we're doing that in October. So uh, we're going to have flyers that are coming out. You should get emails and, and with all the itinerary and stuff that's got all those details. So in my mind, in my sanctified imagination, come October, it would be really cool to be there in Ephesus and reading about the Church of Ephesus and have Jesus come back right at that moment. That would be like way cool, wouldn't it? Right? I wouldn't have to take that long plane ride home. I would just go, I'm out. But that'd be cool. So that's coming up, so, so watch your emails and all of that, and then uh, we'll talk about the other announcements later. Let's pray for re Ukraine right now, though. God, I thank you that you've given us the privilege to partner with Marcel and Angela and their, those are in Harmony. I thank you that the resources that you've provided for us, that we were able to hand it over to them, and that the, the monies that are going are, are being used right now. Yeah, being put in the hands of the refugees, the people that are there for this family, and other families that are starting to come in. Lord, we ask that uh, they would get to the housing that they need, that Marcel would get the permits that he needs, and all the things that they need to do to be able to establish those houses. So, Lord, we also pray for Tryan and his partner as they go in and they take these resources. I pray for their safety. I pray that you would keep everything running well mechanically, that they'd have a good border crossing, and the, the resources would get to the families that have need. Lord, as we take a look at your word tonight, some hard passages. As Tom said, there's going to be some surgery done on our hearts tonight. But God, you are the surgeon, and you cut away that which is, is not worthy. And, and so, Lord, help us to release these things unto you. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul is continuing his letter to the church at Corinth, and it's a response letter to some things that had already come. This is not his first letter that he was writing to them. 
but he was informed about some different things. And we last picked up in the first section, verses or chapters 1 through 4, in dealing with the divisions and the fractions that were in the church and how they were just arguing. They were arguing about, well, who had the better, the better pastor and whether it was Apollos or Paul or Cephas or, or, or were the church of Jesus or whatever the case was. And it was through pride that they had become arrogant about their home church, their house church. And so Paul was dealing with these, these factions and divisions that were taking place. And they really come down to personal preferences. Because they were all biblical teachers, but people were arguing about their personal preferences as one is better than the other. We start picking up now in chapters 5 and 6, and then we, we get to 7 next week. But in chapters 5 and 6 and 7, he's going to deal with some other topics that came to him that needed to be addressed. Sexual immorality that was taking place. Uh, what to do with, that, with a certain individual that was pretty immoral, and, and the attitude of the church in dealing with it. And then also Paul had to deal with civil lawsuits. What was happening with believers taking other believers to a civil court and trying them and dealing with that. And then next week we'll get into the issues of marriage and singleness and divorce. And what does the Bible say about that? The problem is that the church of Corinth began with good orthodoxy. And they started out with really good orthopraxy. In other words, they were practicing good doctrine for a period of time, but they began to drift, as we all do, don't we? We start thinking this, and here's, here's kind of the scenario. God, I know that's your word, but I got this. It's kind of dangerous when we do that to God, right? God, I know you said this, but... I know your word says, but, and, and you know, the problem is we insert that but in there and it makes a mess out of everything. And usually it's an argument based out of pride because being prideful is, is, is one of the problems that we have. I've got this. I don't really need to adhere to all of your word. I just need to have some of it. And we find that we start leaning to our own understanding. And the problem with the Church of Corinth, like us, is when we start compromising, we start putting these things in place where we start inserting our own ideas, that we start having a hard time determining what is right and what is wrong, biblically. We start compromising, and, and so biblical truth starts being compromised by human reasoning. Now, question, is that dangerous? Yeah. Hugely dangerous. When we start interpreting God's Word based on our circumstances or feelings or the social culture, as was true with the Church of Corinth, it's dangerous, isn't it? The, the, the social culture should never determine orthodoxy. Nor should it determine orthopraxy. In other words, what the world does should not determine the truth of God's Word. But it's a hard line to live in because you're continually saturated. So what ends up happening with Corinth, and like with us, is they lost their ability to live a biblically moral life and to determine right from wrong in their judgments. They were tolerating uh, sin within the church, 
which is like a cancer. And as a result, too, they were failing to, to render proper judgments among themselves. And so what happened is the church became very carnal, very fleshly within that. And their moral compass went sideways. And when the moral compass goes sideways, they become powerless as a church in the world. And they wander further and further and further away. So why is Paul writing the letter? To recalibrate them. Every single person here and every person watching online, we continually need to recalibrate our lives, don't we? To get back on center. And, and Paul is writing this letter to recalibrate them, to say, look at this is the truth. Look at how far you've deviated from the truth. Let's make some corrections. Let's alter the course. There's a story about a guy that was leaving the port of Los Angeles and he was heading to Hawaii. And he had his heading on his compass and he was getting ready to go. The only problem is he didn't calibrate his compass prior to going and his compass was half a degree off. He thought, ah, it's not a problem. If you start out from L.A. to Hawaii half a degree off, how far do you think you'll miss the island? Miles. And that's the way compromise works. Just a little, you know, little bit off. Or like I like to say with about my friends sometimes, they're about half a bubble off of level. <laughs> we get off. So what ends up ha driving that is pride. He starts out in verses 1 through 13 as he says this. And again, this would read as a letter. It's a continuation, but he moves to a new topic. And he says this. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you. And immorality as such is a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Now, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged him who was so committed to this as though I were present. And in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the whole leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our, pa Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now I wrote, in, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with all the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or rivaler or drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what I have to do with judging outsiders, do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. <clears throat> so we come to this first segment that Paul deals with, 
And he deals with this attitude of pride that was accepting immorality. Now, whether it was the attitude of we got this, or it was the attitude of we are very, very free in accepting all manners of life, Paul is shocked. Did you note the tone? He's, I'm amazed. Um, it's actually reported? Like, really? Actually reported? It Really? There's a record of a guy that is living in an immoral life and he's accepted by your community. And, and, and it blew his mind as if it was a, a question. And within this, it was a report of, of gross negligence, gross immorality that was being tolerated in the church. And what was the sin? The sin was incest. It was a man who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And the church was allowing it. Someone who was calling himself a brother. It was widely known that it reached the ears of Paul, that this was going on, and it was accepted as fellowship within the church. Question, is that a dangerous thing? Now, by now your mind should be going, oh, wow. I wonder what that looks like. I wonder what that communicates like. I wonder what, what kind of ramifications that has within the church to allow such kind of a morality, immorality of, of, of this thing. Paul says it was a kind of sin that even the Gentiles or the unbelievers would be appalled by. It was the kind of sin that, they would, that even unbelievers wouldn't even take pride in accepting. It was a morality that was, that was so far beyond their comprehension. And Paul's like, how are you doing this? Now keep in mind, the church had only been around for about five or six years. But how fast they degraded in accepting this. And we studied uh, a couple weeks ago, to, there was this attitude in Corinth that you could be so immoral that you were Corinthianized. It was a slang word. It was a horrible word that was within that. And so this church was in grave danger. Why were they in grave danger? Because they were no longer appalled by sin. No longer appalled by sin. In our culture and in our society, think about what kind of dangers happen when sin loses its... its stink when you can't smell it anymore when it's horrible when sin or or these things become normal culture or certain behaviors become normal is that the case in our world today is the world trying to normalize sin not only is the world trying to normalize sin it's trying to legalize it in fact, if you were to stand the ground and say that is sin, then they would pass a law against you. And why is that? Because the church is no longer appalled by sin. We don't look at it and say that is sin. And it's appalling within these things. Jewish law... And Roman law both condemned incest at the time. 
It was against the law to have an incestuous relationship of any form, both in the secular and within the religious. And within this, the church had become so prideful in accepting this person that they, they entered into this place of tolerance. Look at verse 2. He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. You become tolerant of this thing so that the one who had done this deed would be removed. It, it should be such a thing to say, this is not tolerable. This is not acceptable. And we need to get to this place where we say, this lifestyle is not acceptable and you are no longer welcome to be in fellowship here, naming the name of Christ. Now, important to understand what is the context of this situation. It is a person that is in the church that is naming the name of Christ as a believer, fellowshipping as a believer as if this was acceptable. Paul is not addressing the person who was a sinner who is not claiming the name of Christ. And we've got to understand there's a distinction between the two. If someone comes into the fellowship and, and, you know, they're a prostitute or a drug addict and they're not naming the name of Christ, Paul doesn't have a problem with them. But what Paul's having a problem with is the tolerance of the church of these people that are saying, yes, this guy is, is rock solid spiritually and he's practicing these things. And it's, it's important to understand because it goes to the quality of the, the, the ethic of the church that is there. It's as if the church was celebrating its open-mindedness to sin. Do we see that in our world today, in our churches today? Sure, we've got to be accepting. We've got to be open-minded. You know what? I accept people as people. God created them, Imago Dei, in His image. I accept them wholeheartedly wherever they're at. But if you're going to name the name of Christ, if you're going to call yourself a Christ follower, there is a higher standard where you do not have the freedom to be able to continue habitually practice sin. If you want to continue and habitually practice sin, then call a spade a spade and say, you know what, I never accepted the Lord and I'm going to live like this. Great, now we've got something to work with. But the problem is, is the individual is not being true to the church. It wasn't good for the individual. It wasn't good for the church within this. Because it, the practicing of it would continue this person down a trajectory of damnation. It's not loving to let somebody pretend or feel like they are saved when they are not because you widen the gap so wide that they feel like it's okay. That's not loving. What's loving is to say, look it. The arsenic that you're eating is eventually going to kill you. You need to stop. Or the drugs that you're putting in you is going to kill you. Or this lifestyle. And so as a patriarch of the church, Paul's heart was broken. In 2 Corinthians 12, 21, he says this, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and, note, not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. In other words, Paul had every desire to come to Corinth, to visit Corinth, and he says, I'm concerned when I get there, my heart's going to break, and I am going to be humiliated because I am going to be wailing and crying all over the place over how bad it's gotten. 
For those of you that have wayward kids, that you've raised in the Lord and they've gone to church or whatever, and you look at their lifestyle now, you might know the heart of Paul. When you look at their behavior and you go, wow, how far you've fallen. And it just breaks your heart within this. What should they do? What is Paul calling for? He's calling for the proper action. Put this guy out of fellowship. Quit giving this guy a false sense of security and quit giving this idea to everybody else out there that they could live in this false sense of security by continuing to sin because that's what they were doing. When we're accepting somebody in an in a unregenerated, sinful lifestyle and letting them name the name of Christ as their Savior, we're giving them a false sense of security because it's, it's, it's putting like a, a, a band-aid over a gushing wound. Here's a little band-aid. Yeah, but my arm's about to fall off. That's okay, don't, don't worry about it. We've got to understand that, that Paul's heart's broken because he can see the end outcome. And within this, their tolerance of sin, it was falsely based on what we would call today Christian freedom. What is Christian freedom? Christian freedom is the ability to be led by the Spirit and, and to be governed by the Spirit and have the freedom. The freedom to be able to, let's say, for example, drink alcohol or not drink alcohol. Or to be able to watch certain movies or not watch certain movies. Or to go certain places or not go certain places. We exercise Christian freedom all the time based on the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But the problem is... Can I tolerate sin or can I practice sin in the name of Christian freedom? No, because now it becomes an excuse. It becomes an excuse that's in it. And Paul was not physically present, but he was present by spirit. And something that's interesting that as I study this today, you know, whenever you study God's word, you always learn something new. Paul in here sets down a biblical principle and the biblical principle that Paul says is this. I don't have to be there. I don't have to be present. And I don't have to know all the details. But I've already created a judgment. I've already judged this person. I've already judged the situation. In our world today, so many people push back on judging. Well, you don't know all the details. You don't know the circumstances. I can tell you this, according to what Paul's saying here, I don't have to. Sin is sin, and we need to call out sin. And when it's that blatant and that open, it is okay to call sin, sin, and to call the leadership out to lead. And he says, though I'm not there physically, I'm present in spirit, in the unity of the body. In other words, we are one in Christ. And it's as if I was there, so you need to act upon the wishes that I'm telling you. And what was Paul saying? He said, my verdict is in irrevocable. It would be the same as if I was there and I'm not there. Kick this guy out. That sounds pretty harsh, Paul. That sounds pretty unloving. Shouldn't you allow him to hang out so he would learn? If, if, if he's not there, how's he going to be exposed to the light? How's he going to be exposed to the truth? I've heard these arguments. Here's the problem. He's been there already. And whatever he's being exposed to is not the truth because he's continuing in the same actions. And so, so it doesn't work. 
Because the truth that you're exposing to him is a lie. It's tolerance. And he says, and Paul says, under the authority of Jesus and for the sake of this man and for the sake of the body of Christ, kick him out. Kick him out of fellowship. And notice he says, and hand such a one over to Satan. Wow. That's pretty unloving. That's pretty intolerant. That's unaccepting of the diverse lifestyles that are, that are out there. We, you know, we've got to accept everybody. No. What does it mean to turn somebody over to Satan? It means to put him outside of the protection of the church body of prayer in the realm or the governance of Satan so that he will understand the discipline that will come and what it's like to live in Satan's world. Church discipline is always redemptive. It should always be redemptive, and it should always be with the point of restoration, not punitive. The church body should be so loving and so united and, and, and so connected with one another and loving one another so much that there's this great love and bond together and the fear of violating that relationship at such extent that they say, you don't get to benefit from this anymore until you start behaving. That's loving. Because when that person is out under the realm of Satan, then he's going to miss what he had. And that's why as a church, we need to, to really start working harder at demonstrating that love, but also creating an environment where people want to be in that place of fellowship. The church discipline also needs to be a collective discipline. Notice it's Paul saying, this is what you need to do. Church leaders, we are united in one body together under Christ. What happens if part of the church says, hey, you know what, I, I'm, I'm with this guy over here. I think that you're being a little bit hard with him. And the other ones are going, no, we're practicing church discipline over here. This person needs to be put out. This guy is sleeping with his stepmom. It's sin. needs to go out. But, you know, you just don't understand the circumstances. It's real love. What happens to the church body? They split. They split. All church discipline to be effective has to come from a loving heart, redemptive, and with the intention of restoration and unified. It's kind of like in your house. Mom and dad have to agree in order to discipline the kids, don't they? What happens if they're in disagreement? Oh, Junior's going to figure out which one he can manipulate. And then you're done. The other thing that we learn from this, as Paul's declaring this, is that the church body is the authority of Jesus on earth. The authority of Jesus here on earth. In other words, the church represents the body of Christ Jesus and represents Jesus. And what the church says on earth, or as Jesus would say, binds on earth, is bound in heaven. A lot of people say, well, you know, you're not my boss. No, but Jesus put me in charge of you. And it's for your own benefit within this. And as I said, church discipline is, is this idea of restoration. And you think about some of the possible backdrops. The hearers of this. The church in Corinth. What would they have heard of already? Can you think of a, a, a husband and wife in Acts chapter 5 that decided to lie to the Holy Spirit? Remember them? 
Ananias and Sapphira, right? What did they do? They sold some property, thought that they'd be all that. Look at what we gave as they held back money. And what did Peter say? Yep, you're a lion. One drops dead and the other one comes in. Tell me, tell me about this money. Yeah, it's all of it. Are you sure? The feet of the ones that just buried your husband are here for you. They would have heard this church discipline. Another example within this would have been within the church of Corinth itself. Later on, we'll read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, as Paul will deal with the Lord's Supper and some of the discipline that take, took place this. And this one is really a scary one. It says, For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Could you imagine going and celebrating the Lord's Supper, and then after that you die because you took the Lord's Supper in a manner that was unworthy? And God said, I'm sick and tired of your carnality, and your mockery of eating and sinning. And people were getting sick. And it wasn't food poisoning. And they were dying. And it wasn't food poisoning. It was God's judgment. We'll be doing communion next week. <laughs> Just say it. Confessionals over there. Anyways. Another example that they would have known about, heard about, is a kind of discipline with a couple of people, Alexander and Hymenius in 1 Timothy 1, 19-20. says, Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, this is Paul speaking, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Can you imagine being Alexander and Hymenius? My name is written in the book, in the Bible, for all eternity because I really messed up. You don't want to be that guy. Paul calls these people out and he says, I've turned them out publicly in his letter to Timothy. Publicly calls them out and says, these two people are being turned over. He names them and says, I'm turning them over to Satan, to the realm of Satan, so they'll learn not to sin. They'll learn not to sin. There comes a time in church discipline when you have to say enough is enough. And you need to be able to, to turn them over. Why? Because you hate them? No, because you love them. But within this, we've we got to understand that, that when, we, when we tolerate sin in our life, we're tolerating contamination. Paul reaches back into his Jewish mindset, because he's a Jew, in the Passover meal. Now, again, he's writing to Gentiles, but they would understand a little bit. But he reaches back and he says, how do I explain it to these guys? Well, in the Passover, what would the Jews do? Prior to the Passover, they would go around and, and remove all the leaven from the house. Because the leaven was yeast that works through. There was a saying, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. They would have known what it means within this. And the Passover, and Christ is that Passover. So if Christ is the Passover which he is, then we've got to remove the sin out of our life in order to be in fellowship with him. Because if we allow a little bit of sin in our life, it's going to grow. How many of you in here do not have a problem with sin? <laughs> How many of you do? We all. And we always have to be on guard and make sure that, that 
when that sin starts creeping up, when we become aware of it, that we remove it. We've got to be on watch for it. Why? Because it's a slippery slope. It is so slippery before you know it. And all it takes is this little, this little bit. I love sourdough bread, but it's full of death in a lot of ways for me. But you look at it and you think about it. What's Paul saying? He says, as a church body, you can't tolerate that. In your personal life, you can't tolerate that. And you have to be removed. In the body of Christ, you can't tolerate that. And so in order for the body of Christ to worship, all that known sin has to be removed. When we come to the Lord's table, we come to, and, and we come this Sunday as we come for communion, one of the things that you need to do in order to be able to worship in spirit and in truth is say, God, search me and know me. Look inside of me and see if there's any wicked way in me. And confess that. When you come before the throne of grace, confession is the, the first thing that you need to do. And be honest with God. Why? Because He knows. You're not informing Him of anything. You're agreeing with Him. And that's what confession is. Confession is agreeing about your lifestyle, your sin, the same way that God sees it. That's what confession is. So many times we think in confession, I'm informing God. No. You're just bringing it up to the surface and say, God, I see it the way you see it. And then you get rid of it. Remove it within that. So Paul goes on and he rebukes and corrects this, this church here in, in verses 9 through 13. And he says this. He says, I wrote this letter. I wrote in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Paul had written a previous letter, one that we do not have. But in a previous letter, he had already instructed the church not to have an association with immoral people within this. Now, what Paul is not saying is that they are called to live an ascetic life. You know what an ascetic life is? Don't hang out with anybody that is a sinner. The only problem is you'd never see each other. Because we're all sinners. But what's he talking about? He's talking about those that are in habitual practice of sin, specifically the sexually immoral sin. He's, he's, and he's also not saying that you can't talk to or associate with non-believers. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he says that if I told you not to associate with non-believers, then you would have nowhere to go. So who's he singling out? He's singling out this individual this individual that is a professing believer or calls himself a believer and is engaging in what is called profane behavior. Mark them. They're walking in a manner out of order and don't have any fellowship with them. In Titus 3.10 and 11, we, we understand this idea of association and, and, and it means to mix up. And in Titus 3.10 to 11, it says this, Reject a factious man, after a first or second warning, knowing that such a man, note, is perverted and is sinning and being self-condemned. So Titus says what? Warn him once, warn him twice, they don't have anything to do with him. Why? Because he's not listening to the warning. He's not listening to, because you're not going to change them. And there's grave danger in you associating with them and being that, because the, the problem is, you become like them. Well, the question that we come up with is then, how do believers relate 
to people within the world? How do you relate to people in the world? If you're not to associate, which means like being best friends, or to mix up your relationship, how do you relate to people that are not saved? Because there is this danger of, you know, becoming part of the frozen chosen. You know who the frozen chosen are, right? I only, I only go to church, hang out with Christians, and I don't talk to people in the world. You are not called to do that. You are called to be in relation. How, how does evangelism work? Isn't that what Jesus did? But he, but he did not become friends of the world. So what do you have to do? Well, there's three things. One, you have to understand the difference and maintain that understanding between that which is spiritually alive and spiritually dead. You always approach those relationships as saying, this person is unregenerated and needs to know Jesus. That is the number one goal in, in a relationship with an unbeliever, that they would come to faith in Jesus. That needs to be the focus. The second thing is you need to become that godly influence to the unsaved person and refuse to adopt their influence into your life. In other words, you need to be that godly influence. You need to be that light in a dark place. You need to be that salt. You need to be that godly influence to them and refuse to adopt their lifestyle and to gather that in. And then thirdly, live as a purifying and illuminating source in the world as salt and light. Live that way. If you're hanging around people for the purpose of evangelism and you start talking like the people you're hanging out with, or thinking like the people you're hanging out with, or doing things like the people that you're hanging out with, you're compromised. Your witness is becoming compromised. You should always pray first before you meet with them. Have a strategy when you meet with them. You say, well, Carrie, is that manipulative? No, that's evangelistic. Because what is your purpose? Make disciples. That's what you're here for. And to be in that place. And Paul's calling for the Christians, again, not to associate with those that profess to be Christians, that are faking it. And, and within this, he says those Christians should not hang out with the, the immoral Christians, but to disassociate from them. What does that look like? That means to, to turn away from them. To turn away from those that are the partiers, the idolaters, the swindlers. Not to have any association with those that are there. This, notice in verse 11, the so-called brother, if he is an immoral person or a covetous or an idolater, a reveler, or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Now, there's a lot of different ways that people will interpret this. They'll say, well, I can't even have a meal with him. It's not what he's saying, I don't think. What he's saying is not to share the Lord's Supper with them. In other words, if there's a Christian brother that is living, or a Christian sister that is living in sin, and you know they're living in sin, and it would have been much easier in the house churches that they were in, for you not to take communion with that person. Why? Because it's an act of worship. It's acknowledging the fact that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. It is celebrating that which is in common, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. How could you have that in common if they're practicing sin? He says, don't do it. Take that stand. Even to the point, would you go to that brother or sister and say, I can't have communion with you because you're still living in sin. 
Repent of your sin. Come back to the Lord so that we might have communion together. We might celebrate communion together. But till then, it's a no-go for me. Not to share that, that Lord's Supper meal that's there. And in context, that's what Paul is talking about, the gathering of the church. And as we'll see later in Corinthians, the sicknesses that were going on within the church and even unto death because they weren't practicing that. So he's having a clean house. Lastly, in, in chapter 5, he says this, the church's job is not to judge the world. Please hear me clearly with that. It is not our job to judge the world. It is our job to judge ourselves. It is our job to judge people within the church. But it is not our job to judge them. Paul says that's God's job. There is one lane that we need to stay in. Our lane. And we need to stay out of God's lane. That belongs to God. And I can tell you this, I have enough to do in my life without having to worry about judging everybody else in the world. But within this, he, he, he says, look at you've got enough, Corinth, to judge within yourself. The other aspect is this. How much authority do I have to those that are not saved? Do I have any authority over them? Absolutely not. So if I have no authority, then what, what does my judgment do? Absolutely nothing but blows a witness. I should love them. But within the church, I do have authority. Why? Because we are one body under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you're causing division, or if there is sin, then for the sake of the health and the unity, for your sake and the body's sake, then yes, we need to deal with that. To be able to judge within. Within this, we've got to understand that, that it's going to be tough. There is a, a, a grave responsibility of the church to judge the church itself and that alone. First Peter, Peter would write in his letter, First Peter four fourteen to 17 says this, If you were reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. So expect it. And make sure that none of you suffers, note, as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer, troublesome or meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in this name. In other words, if you're suffering because you're a sinner, well, then you get what you get, don't throw a fit. If you're suffering as a Christian, you're blessed. Why? Because you're representing Jesus. But there's a distinction that's in there and should not be ashamed. But then Peter goes on and he says, For it's time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, we've got to take care of our own house and not worry about the house out there. We need to put our emphasis on the things that are going on within the church and, and let God deal with those things that are outside of the church. Going on with that same theme of judgment, he opens up, he continues this thought in chapter 6. Because here's the problem. You were, you were, your judgment is poor in tolerating sin within the church. Now your judgment is poor in how you're dealing with one another in civil lawsuits. Notice what he does here and in, in focuses on this next topic. There was litigation that was going on between believers. In other words, Corinthian believers were taking other Corinthian believers to a civil court. 
and going to a civil non-believer judge to try between two believers. You say, well, what's the problem with that? What is the basis of judgment of an unbeliever? It's going to be a worldly standard. What is the basis of a believer? Godly standard. Where do you need, if you've got two believers, who's your authority? The world or God? And to be able to decipher that. And under the body of Christ and under the authority of Christ, Jesus needs to be the judge. So these civil cases were going on under secular judges, Christians taking other Christians to court. Why? Because they wanted theirs. I'm going to take you to court. Why? Because you've wronged me and I want my due diligence or I want to make you pay within this. And, and, and what ends up happening is it leads and reveals the failure of the church, the failure of judgment. The failure of discerning right and wrong. And if the church can't settle the simple disputes within itself, then how is the church ever going to be qualified to rule with Jesus in the, in the kingdom age? We're going to have far greater responsibility when Jesus comes back. So we need to get it together. So in verses 1 through 11, he works through the litigation. Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know how we will judge angels and how much matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges? Who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother and even that for the unbelievers. Actually, then it's already a defeat for you. That you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary. You yourselves wrong and defraud you do this even to your own brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicator, nor adulterer, idolater, or adulterers, or effeminate, or homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covenants, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such as were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the spirit of God. So he, he talks about this litigation. And again, Paul is shocked by the church of Corinth. He says, isn't there anybody smart in your church? Really, do you have to do this? It's not the behavior of a child of God to be able to bring your brother to court. They already have a greater responsibility as a child of God to be able to judge within the kingdom of God. But the problem was the conflict was coming as a, as a result of pride. And in their house, they weren't dealing with their house. You know, one of the things that I think is super important, and, and while counselors are important, I think it's best to try to take care of your business within your own house. And from that foundation of faith, and using a counselor or a coach just to try to square things up, but have two people that have the same foundation that will come together and to agree, a third party may be necessary in order to weed things out a little bit. But it's sad 
when believers go to the unbelievers to try to sort things out. And what standard does the world use? The worldly standard. Well, maybe I want the worldly standard. Why do I want the worldly standard? Because the worldly standard is going to get me what I want. The worldly standard is going to, going to allow me to sue and take everything from this guy. And the worldly standard is going to be immoral at best. Not true for a Christ follower. Christians are called to a higher calling. And we're called to a higher standard. And we're called not to, to bring our brother or sister to court, but to deal with it within the house of God, within that. As I said earlier, Christians are going to be brought to a place, the church is going to be brought to a place of judgment in the last days. Daniel chapter two, 7, verse 22 says this, And in the ancient of days, that would be Jesus, came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and at that time when he arrived, the saints took possession of the kingdom. When Jesus comes back, he's going to establish his kingdom on earth. And the church is going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. I want Hawaii, please. It's an island. Where are they going to go? Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 says this. Then I saw thrones, and he sat on them, and the judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the world, word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast in his image and not received the mark of their forehead and they had in their hand and they came to life. And note, they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But if you can't handle a little civil dispute between a brother or a sister, how are you going to rule a nation, a country, a state, or whatever Jesus gives you authority over. Paul mocks the church and, and within this. And he says, is there not anybody there among you that could be a judge? In fact, he shames the church. Verse 5, this is to your shame. Not one wise man above you, above you that could judge between his brethren. And if you take somebody to court, you've already lost. That's an interesting statement. Why, has two, why, why do two believers put themselves in a position of already losing when they take their case to a, a worldly judge? What does it say to the world? That the law of God, the rule of God, is not sufficient. It says that that is in there. And the problem is with litigation, we, we, we want winners and losers. But when Christians do this, everybody's a loser. How do I know that? Well, let's take divorce. Who wins in a divorce? No one. There are no winners. There are no winners, just losers within that. Why? Because it's a fractured of a relationship. And within that defeat... Everybody loses. Not only does everybody lose, but the testimony of the church. So what is the Christian ethic? The Christian ethic that Jesus taught us is it is better to be mistreated than retaliate. It's better to be mistreated than retaliate. It's better to, to accept loss than demand justice. Jesus, who was led like a lamb to slaughter, Held that, held that place within that. 
And so Paul says, why not rather be wronged than be defrauded? Now, that's a hard pill to swallow. It really is. Because in our flesh, we struggle. But there is a greater testimony. It's better to be wronged by someone than to ruin your testimony. It is better to be wronged and keep the integrity of the gospel than compromise the gospel. The life, is on, the life of the church is on display, you guys. Everybody is watching. And they're looking for a reason not to believe. To discredit and, di- and, and make illegitimate your testimony that's there. And when believers act like unbelievers, especially in court, then the world says, why should I believe what you believe? It has made no difference in your life. There's no value in it. Furthermore, in verses 9 through 11, Paul goes through this whole list. And you would think that this list was something that was taken out of context, and sometimes it is. You would say, well, Paul, you went on a tangent and you're just speaking against a bunch of people that are in horrible lifestyles. I mean, these are some pretty bad lifestyles, are they not? Shameful lifestyles. We think about these lifestyles, and as you enter in, it says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, the unrighteous will never judge in the kingdom of heaven. That's the context. And who are the unrighteous that will never inherit the kingdom of heaven or be judges in the kingdom of heaven? He gives this list. It's those of sexual depravity, fornicators. The word is pornea. Literally means those that practice that which is sexually immoral. Idolaters. Why is idolaters in the sexual list? Because in the Corinthian culture, it was part of the pagan worship to go to the temple prostitute to worship idols. And so as part of your idolatry, you were sexually active in the pagan practices. The adulterers, these were those that were sexually unfaithful. The effeminate, the word effeminate is malakos, it means soft. And by definition, it is the passive person in a homosexual relationship. Effeminate. Homosexuals is the counterpart. He would be or she would be. That would be the active partner in a homosexual relationship or homosexual behavior. Paul says these are the sexual sins that are there. Will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Will not rule in the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, talks about social depravity. The thieves, the covenants, the drunkards, the rivalers, the swindlers. The me-centered life. He says, don't be deceived. Those that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, nor will they be rulers in the kingdom of heaven. But, here's the irony, you're going to them to judge you. He says, and were such you, but then you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified. You used to be like that. Now, if that was your lifestyle, go to them. Why? Because they're like-minded. But you're not like that anymore. So quit going to them for judgment. They're not capable of ruling. Why? Because they're spiritually dead. The born-again believer is the better judge. Why is he a better judge? The born-again believer is a better judge because they have a better law. They have a better God. They have a better Christ. They have a better pattern. And they have a better outcome. Because the born-again believer actually loves the person they're judging. Whereas the unrighteous doesn't love the person they're judging. I would rather go to a judge that loves me and has my best interest 
rather than someone who is looking what they can get from me or to destroy me. Why else is the believer a better judge? Because they have the greater capacity for grace. No one knows grace like one who has been given grace by God. They are a better judge because they love. They are a better judge because they can show grace. And they are a better judge because they know what forgiveness means because they've been forgiven. So why are we taking our stuff to the world to be judged? It's foolishness. We should go to those that have our best interest at heart. In a perfect world, in my perfect world, <laughs> only spirit-led Christians would be judges all the way through to the Supreme Court. Why? Because they're the best judges. A spirit-led, born-again believer is the best judge. An unbeliever, they might be smart, but they don't know grace, they don't know mercy, they don't know forgiveness, and they don't know love because they don't know God. Therefore, we need to pull back from these things and say, God, you're in charge. And let the litigation be done within the house of God. And understand that even in the world standards that we lose, that's okay. Paul would write in Romans fourteen seventeen, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not eating and drinking. It's not the temporal things. Who cares? It's all about the joy and the peace that's in that. Lastly, Paul deals with the behavior of the believers in verses 12 to 20. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by any. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is the Lord of the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is the one with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality and every other sin that man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Well, the last thing he does, and he comes back and he circles back around on this incestuous man and the condition in this. He says, look it, this is why it's bad. Who owns you? God. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, God owns you and he owns your body. It belongs to him. That's what it means to be redeemed. You are not your own and your body is not your personal play toy. It, it belongs to God. And what should we do? As he ended this, he says, glorify God in your body. One of the greatest stumbling blocks for the church of Corinth and for the believer's life is sexual sin. It is a stumbling block to everyone. And in Corinthian pride, they thought, well, we can tolerate this incestuous person. 
And he says, no. But the other problem was this prostitution that was going on. Now, understandably, the believers that were coming out of a Corinthian lifestyle had generations where it was acceptable to go to the temple prostitute. And yet, they were coming out of this lifestyle, and he says, no, you can't do that. Because you're joining yourself to a prostitute. And he says, all things are lawful by the grace of God, but it's not profitable. One of the questions you can ask yourself is, while I can do this, should I do it? While I have the grace of God to do this, is this the best thing that I could be doing or should be doing? God has graced me to be able to do this, but we should never use grace as an excuse for sin, ever. Well, God's given me grace. God's given me grace. I'm going to do this right now. I'm going to ask for forgiveness later. Does it work that way? No, it doesn't work that way. And so we've got to ask ourselves, is this the best thing or the most profitable thing that I could be doing? Paul says, like food. Food is good, isn't it? Until it turns to gluttony. Money, good? Until it becomes greed. Sex, good? It is. In the context of marriage. But it's bad when it becomes immorality. When we think about alcohol, tastes good? Is it good? Till it overcomes you. All things are profitable, all things I could do. But the problem is when it overpowers me, now we got a problem. It, and it controls me. When the thing that you think is good that you've got to control over, and here is, the, here is the, the tell. When you say, I can do this because I can handle it. <laughs> Have you already crossed the line? Yeah. Yep. If you say, I can do this and I can handle it, you've already crossed the line. And you're sliding down that slippery slope. If we understand who owns us and who we are joined to, then we will understand that we belong with Christ. And as Paul would go on, on in saying this, he says, your body is not your own, you're joined with Christ. And he uses this illustration, and I want you to think about this. Paul uses this illustration in such a way, he says, whenever you go into a prostitute, you're taking Jesus with you. Oh, no. That's a bad visual image. Whenever I do whatever this sin is, I'm, taking, I'm forcing Jesus to go with me on this. When I'm watching this movie, when I'm you know, getting ripped, whenever, whatever I'm doing, I'm making Jesus do this. Why? Because they're inseparable. It's not like you can hide Jesus. You can't say, hey, stay home while I go sin for a while. Our union with Christ is significant. The body is the Lord's and we worship him with our body. The body is destined for resurrection. That is the goal. The body is the part of the body of Christ that's joined with him in spirit. And the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when you go sin, just understand this. You're taking Jesus with you. He's right there with you. And here's how you avoid it. Jesus, is it okay if I go in and have sex with this prostitute right now? You want to come? How do you think that conversation is going to go? Not very good. And that's why we need to check ourselves. 
We are members of the body of Christ within this. James restates this Pauline concept in James 4.4. 4. He says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world or join himself to the world makes himself as an enemy of God. You cannot be there. So he says, look it, flee immorality. Run. Can you think of a Bible character that ran from immorality? A guy early on in the Old Testament, his name was Joseph. Potiphar's wife says, hey, Joseph, you're a slave. I own you. Come here. What did Joseph do? He beat feet and ran. Naked. She had his cloak. He was gone. Sometimes you just got to run. Sometimes you got to avoid. You got to flee immorality. Every other kind of sin, Paul says in verse 18, is done outside. But immorality, it's the outside and the inside. Why? Because it hurts the outside and it hurts the soul. This man that was incestuous with his wife was hurting himself, but he was also hurting the church. And he was creating a fraction within the church, and they were divided over this. You are the temple of God. Worship God with your body. Worship God with your whole being. He deserves it. He saved you. And when sin starts creeping in, ask yourself, Jesus, do you really want to do this with me? It'll keep you from that place. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we can come to this place and we can worship you. I thank you, God, that we can honor you with our voices and our lives and our bodies. Lord, each one of us are struggling with sins and, and thoughts, actions, areas in our life that we have to put to death. Give us victory over that, Lord, as we confess these sins. We know you're faithful and just to forgive us. There's no condemnation for those who are called according to your holy name, Lord Jesus. We thank you that, that we live that freedom but Lord, help us not to use that freedom for our own advantage. Lord, may you build into our lives a, a sacrifice, an offering. And may we present that offering daily to you, our lives, our voices, and every part of our being. And may everything we say and do make you smile. In Jesus' name, amen.
closing and as our closing prayer, I surrender. I surrender. I surrender. I want to know you more. I want to know you more. Lord, that's our prayer. Creating us a clean heart each and every day as we lean and trust in you and follow you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Praise Jesus. Have a good rest of your week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.